learn that all of us are rich. God has blessed all of us, and God wants us all to live the good life. And yet his upside-down perspective tells us that living the good life means learning how to be content. Because when we are content with what we have, then we are free to become like God. We are free to become generous, right? And so the verse we looked at was, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so I hope you did something with the challenge that we, were, we ended with last week. Remember, we ended with the challenge to do something in your life, to take at least one intentional step towards contentment, cultivating greater contentment in your life. Because this society, this world will try and drown you with discontent. Okay, so I hope you took one step, contentment. This morning, we move from God's call to us to be content to Jesus' command to us to be shrewd with our money. And that command is found in Luke 16. Take out your Bibles. Turn to Luke 16 with me, page 1014 in your Bibles in front of you. While you're looking that up, I'll let you know that uh, I'm coming up on my, my 20th year of preaching I number my sermons. I'm over 1,100 sermons so far. And up till now, I've completely avoided preaching on Luke 16, 1 through 9. This will be sermon number one on this passage, all right? Over the years, I've had more people stop in my office and say, hey, can, can we talk about this parable of Jesus? We've had, I've had more people ask me about this section than any other verse in Scripture because it's really, really hard to understand. Right? In fact, I was reading this past week, and, and uh, some of the church fathers say, you know what, this is the hardest parable to explain. Some, some of them just threw up their hands and gave up on this parable. So wish me luck this morning as we dive into Luke 16, 1 through 9, the parable of the shrewd manager. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. All right, can you see why I've avoided it for 20 years? From the first read, it certainly looks like Jesus is commending financial dishonesty, right? He's commending cheating. Right? Here's, here's this manager, 
A manager in those days, in that culture, was someone who handled, who handled all of his master's business affairs, right? He had full control of his master's finances. And this manager is about to be fired for underhanded and criminal actions. It's a dire situation for him, right? He's certain never to get a job in the field again. He, he, he's losing his livelihood. He's losing his reputation. He's losing everything. So it looks like before he loses financial control, he, he quickly meets with each person who owes his master money, and he slashes their bills significantly in order to buy their loyalty, right? So that when he goes out on the street, they're motivated, almost obligated, to take care of him, to return the favor. You scratch my back up, I'll scratch yours. It's a shady, unethical use of his master's money to provide for his own future. And then comes verse 8, where the master commends him for what he did. Then comes verse 9, where Jesus tells us to be like him. So what are we supposed to take away from that? Or should we take away that, that it's okay to be scheming and conniving with our money? Maybe we should take away that, that we should try and buy our salvation, that use your money to try and outwit God somehow? Should we take away that, that the ends justify any means? I'm pretty sure none of those things are what Jesus is teaching here because that's the opposite of what he teaches every other place in his life, right? So as I, as I dug into this passage this past week, I found that understanding this story better within its cultural context, within its first century context, it, it turned this parable upside down for me. So let's take a closer look at this story. We're introduced here in verse 1 to two main characters in the parable, right? The first is the master, the rich man, and the second is the manager. And we find out very quickly that this manager is a shady character, right? He, he was the steward of the rich man's business, which means he's in charge of all of this man's business affairs, handles all of his accounting books, right? As a wealthy landowner, this master would, would rent out his land, right? And at the beginning, before anything was planted every year, they would sit down, all of his renters would sit down with his manager and agree on what percentage, how much of the crop the master was going to get come harvest time. That's how these contracts worked in this day. Okay, and there's the manager's job then to negotiate these contracts and then to collect the payments come harvest time. He received a nice salary for his work. The, the, the master would pay him a salary. He also got kind of a commission for each contract from the renter. The renter would pay him their commission as well. So it was a great job. But it comes to the master's attention that, that this manager of his is also making some extra under the table illegally. So in verse 2, this master calls his manager into his corner office and he fires him. Right? When, when he gives the command in verse 2, right, the words say, give an account of your management. Really what, what the, those words are saying is, bring me the books. Bring me the accounting books immediately. And notice in verse 2, this manager doesn't argue once. He doesn't try to defend himself. He doesn't try to justify anything. 
And his silence in the face of, of his firing proves his guilt. He knows he's guilty. He knows he's been caught red-handed. He knows he deserves this punishment coming to him. His master is not being unfair to him at all. He's being completely just. This is the way it's supposed to happen when you get caught. He knows there's no excuses he can give that will get his job back. Firing him is the right and the just thing to do, and he knows it. He knows the truth about his master. His master is an honorable man who will do the right and the just thing. But everything in this story points to the master being honorable, being just, being a good guy through and through. Some of you may have heard this before because one one interpretation of this story is that the debts that this manager ends up slashing, some interpreters say those debts were, were the the illegal interest that this manager put on to his renters. So it wasn't legal. He was kind of a shady guy himself. And so it was good for that manager to, to cut off that debt that was illegal for him to do anyways. Well, that doesn't fit in the context of the story because all evidence points to this master being well-respected by the community, being well-respected by his renters, by the people he's doing business with. Right? He, he's a just man. He expects obedience and he executes justice appropriately when it's deserved. Because he can't miss in verse 2 that he's a man of justice, right? He calls him in, he says, You've done acts. It's undeniable, so you're fired. But you can't miss in verse 2 that he fires this manager. Yes, he deserves to be fired. The manager's just. But you can't miss that he's also unusually merciful here. Because the law of the land, that first century law, said that that this dishonest manager needs to be prosecuted for his crimes. Right? He's responsible to pay back all that he's stolen, and he should be tried and sent to jail. And yet there's nothing of that here. The manager doesn't call the police. The manager doesn't throw him in jail. There's never any evidence that he plans to. He shows him extraordinary mercy to this man who deserved none. And yet in the midst of giving justice, he shows mercy as well. And it's the mercy of the master that now opens the door for this manager's next steps, right? he realizes that he's in a desperate situation. He's losing his livelihood. He's losing his career. He's losing his reputation. He doesn't have a leg to stand on in this town anymore. The one thing he does realize he has is an opportunity. He has a small window of time where no one else knows that he's been fired. And having experienced both now the justice and the mercy of his master... He recognizes the mercy he's been granted. He decides to risk everything, hoping for greater mercy. Right? The key to his scheme working out, and I think the key to us understanding this parable, is that no one else knows that he's been fired yet. And that fact changes the whole story. It changes our perspective, doesn't it? So when he calls these debtors, these renters, to come quickly to his office, they still have to be assuming that he's acting on behalf of his master. 
right? He's still acting on behalf of this honorable man that they're indebted to and who they like and respect. In fact, in verse 5, the manager asks his first visitor, he says, how much do you owe my master? He's still calling him my master. He's still leading them to believe that he's representing his master. If they thought otherwise, they never would have gone along with the scheme. I mean, think about it. This, this manager is going down, right? And if they know that he's going down, and if they willingly go along with his scheme, then they're going down too, right? Because the, ma- the master will find out what's happened. There's no question about that. There's no way you can hide it. So why would they choose to align themselves with this servant for, for a short-term profit When they know if they do that, they're going to lose their land. They will no longer be renters on that land. They're going to lose everything that they have built up. They're they're going to lose their reputation if they choose to be a partner in crime with him. They couldn't have known this manager's scheme. So with that in mind, put yourself in their shoes for a moment. They walk into the manager's office unsure of why they've been called there. And they walk out a few moments later with an amazing blessing, right? They just saved themselves tons. I mean, the law did allow for these contracts that are made in the spring to be renegotiated if necessary, right? If, if, the, if in the grozing season the rain never comes, or if in this growing season the locusts do come, these renters can go to their master and they can beg for mercy. Right? They can beg for an adjustment to the contract because the crops haven't come in the way that they're supposed to. Not a joyful or a pleasant situation. One that you go to when you're desperate. Well here, much to their shock, without their even having to ask for it, the master, in their perspective, the master is voluntarily reducing their debt significantly. They're getting a huge Christmas bonus before Christmas was even invented. It's awesome. They are celebrating like you wouldn't believe. Now, the manager certainly happened to mention that that he had a hand in convincing the master to do this. But all the credit for the generosity is going to the big boss. So what are they thinking about him as they walk out? He's the hero, right? He is the best boss ever. They knew him to be honorable. They knew him to be just. They knew he was a good man to work for. Now they know him to be generous and merciful. And he's a great man to work for. And they love him. So now the manager packs up the books. With these freshly changed accounts, right? And delivers them to his master. Just as he was commanded to do. And the master opens him up, looks him over, sees what's been done, and he reflects on his options now. He has to know full well that in the local village, the celebration's already started. Right? Glasses are being raised and toasts are being made to him, the most noble, the most generous man that they've ever known, their hero. And he knows he can do one of two things now. He can choose to double down on justice if he wishes. And he can invalidate all of the discounts that this manager has just done. 
right? He has every right. He has every right to explain that it was all an illegal scheme, to tell them that the, these, these, this manager's motivations had been wrong, that he had already been fired, that there's no legal leg for them to stand on. It's null and void, and they still owe him the full amount of the contract. And he would immediately go from being the hero to being the goat. Right? And, and all of their great joy that they're celebrating right now would turn to anger instead. They curse him for his stinginess. Or, on the other hand, he can choose mercy. He can absorb all of that debt himself. Right? He can keep quiet, take it upon himself, and accept the praise that's being given to him. They ride the wave of popular enthusiasm that celebrates him as their hero. The master chooses mercy. He chooses mercy not because he has to, not because this manager somehow forced him to. He chooses mercy because that's who he is. That's who he's proven himself to be. That's who the manager knew him to be. He experienced that mercy. This manager wasn't forcing his boss to become something he wasn't. Instead, his actions revealed this heart of mercy that he knew his boss already had. In a backhanded kind of way, this manager's actions were were kind of a compliment to his master. He knew his master was generous. He knew his master was merciful. So he threw himself completely on that mercy. He had no other leg to stand on. And so he, he, he bet it all on the master's mercy. And he won. Everybody won. His opportunity was to show mercy in order to receive mercy. And the master compliments him on being shrewd. That word shows up twice in verse 8. First, the master compliments the manager for being shrewd. Then Jesus compliments the people of this world for being shrewd. What does that word mean? We don't use it often, right? It's not a very popular word, so we aren't always completely clear what it means for us, right? I asked around this week, I'd say, I asked some people, so when I say the word shrewd, what do you think of? And, And to a T, everybody I asked had a negative connotation, Somebody who's shrewd is somebody you don't really want to do business with, you don't really want to hang around with. Well, by definition, there isn't anything negative about it. If you open the dictionary, if you trust the dictionary, there's nothing negative about it, right? To be shrewd is to be astute and sharp in practical matters. Synonyms they give include quick and discerning, perceptive, intelligent, all good things. And that's what this manager is complimented on. He's not praised for his dishonesty. He's praised for being wise, for knowing where his salvation lay, for trusting in and uncovering the great mercy of his master. As I read it this week, I realized this story is more about mercy than it is about money. And yet Jesus goes on to link those two things together in his summary in verse 9. What does Jesus want us to learn? 
His quick summary in verse 9 is, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. And suddenly Jesus' point isn't an invitation to be scheming and conniving and dishonest with your money for God. Instead, his point is for those of us who are rich, and again, remember that's all of us, for those of us who are rich to first of all recognize who we are. We are desperate people who have earned nothing, who deserve nothing, but have received mercy. That's you, and that is me. We are the manager in the story here. We are guilty before our master. We are guilty, and he has every right to speak justice to us. That's what's fair. That's what's right. And instead, he shows us mercy. And so living in mercy knowing we don't have a leg to stand on on our own, living in mercy, we now entrust everything we have and everything we are to this unfailing mercy of our generous master, God. We throw ourselves completely on his mercy because there isn't anything we can do on our own to get back into God's good graces. So now as recipients of mercy, we jump at our opportunity to use everything at our disposal, all the blessings he's given us, the money, the wealth, whatever we have, to highlight God's mercy, to be merciful as we show his mercy. And when we are merciful in God's name, what do people think of God? When we are merciful to others in God's name, he becomes the hero. He becomes the best boss ever, right? They discover him to be generous and merciful, a great God to be in relationship with. They love him. So Jesus calls us to be shrewd with our money, to be smart with our money to make wise use of the finances God has given us, not to earn our way into heaven, not, not to, to somehow earn God's favor, but to show God to others, to show them his mercy, to show them his generosity and love, to reveal God's heart to a world that's desperate to see it and to know it. How exactly do we do that? What does that look like? Well, I don't think it's coincidence that, that Jesus tells another story quickly on the heels of this parable. Right? One that shows us how not to do it. Right? Look, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse nine, 19. Here's one of the next stories Jesus tells. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, 
because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. Right? There was a rich man who lived in luxury every day, who had food falling from his table and refused to let any of it make its way to Lazarus, who refused to show mercy to those who needed it. You know, for those of us who follow Jesus, who truly truly want to be disciples, active disciples. There's a clear link between money and mercy. Right? True disciples recognize that, that the mercy that God has showered them with, and they can't help then but mirror that mercy in their lives with their finances. They can't help but be shrewd to use their wealth wisely to highlight God's great mercy. They can't help but show mercy to others because they've received mercy. And when they show mercy to others, they can't help but point to God and say it's all because of him. This, this hard parable needs us to answer a hard question. How shrewd are we with the wealth that God has given us? Are we astute and sharp and discerning and perceptive and wise with it? Not, not so that we can keep building our own luxury. Not so that we can keep gaining more and more for ourselves. But are we astute and wise with it so that God's generosity is revealed and experienced by this world? Are we wise and discerning enough to be enthralled and captivated more by God's mercy than by our money? What do we trust and love more? Our money or God's mercy? An accounting of our books would tell us the answer. You know, Jesus sends his disciples into the world. He sends us into this world with his wealth, and he sends them, and he sends us with these words in Matthew 12. He says to them, he says to us, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Shrewd and innocent. There's the perfect combination for those of us who have received mercy so that we might show mercy. You pray with me. Father God, you have given us so much. As we celebrated earlier in the service, it's all because of grace. Everything we have is your grace, is your mercy, because we know that we deserve nothing. We sit here this morning before you, guilty. We have no argument, we have no plea. We deserve your judgment. We deserve to have everything taken from us. And yet you have shown us mercy. You have shown us mercy because you love us. And you've not only given us your son, 
You've not only given us a way to live fully for eternity, but in your mercy, you have blessed us richly in this life as well. You've given us what we don't deserve. Father, in humility, may we use what you've given us to show others your mercy as well. To point to you and let them know of your great mercy and love for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Our final song is a commitment, right? Everything that we have, everything we are, if we truly believe it, is mercy, is grace, because we deserve nothing.